Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Over the past several months, there has been a great deal of focus on Ukraine's counteroffensive. Many of Ukraine's supporters have had high hopes for this operation, with the United States and its European allies having provided unprecedented levels of military aid to Kyiv in preparation. Yet as the summer comes to a close without evidence of decisive territorial gains by Ukraine, perspectives on the trajectory of the conflict are becoming more pessimistic. Earlier this month, for instance, the U.S. intelligence community assessed that Ukraine would fail to achieve its goal of reaching the strategic city of Melitopol, and media reporting has increasingly focused on the shortcomings of Ukraine's military forces. Nonetheless, many observers have pushed back on this narrative, noting Ukraine's steady progress in adapting its tactics in the face of formidable challenges. In this, con- in this context of conflicting perspectives on the current state of the war, we're very pleased to have two of the leading experts in the field with us today on the podcast, Mike Kaufman and Mark Hurtling. Welcome to you both. Great to be with you, Andrea. Uh, brief bios, Mike is Senior Fellow in the Russia and Eurasia Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he focuses on the Russian military and Eurasian security issues. And Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling is a former United States Army officer who previously served as commander of U.S. Army Europe from 2011 to 2012. All right, Mike, you just put out a great uh, overview, a compilation of the first several weeks, months of this offensive. So three months in, where are we? Um, How have Ukraine's tactics, uh, how have they uh, changed over this offensive? Just kind of set the table for us. Where are we? Okay, so I think the short story here is that the offensive had proceeded fitfully and it had a prolonged attritional phase with Ukrainian forces then trying to switch to limited attempts to break through Russian lines. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen a somewhat changed dynamic where Ukrainian force has sufficiently degraded the Russian defense and started making better progress, particularly through the first Russian defensive line, which the Russian military largely chose to make the main defensive line, right? There are other entrenchments and we can discuss them, but a lot of the Russian forces concentrated on that forward defense. So getting through that first line is pretty significant. Now, that said, the pace of the advance has still been, well, I don't want to say slow because it's relative to expectations, of course, and relative to planning. But nonetheless, we've not seen a dramatic breakout. So far, it seems Ukrainian military still has the combat power to keep pushing. But there are a couple of constraints. First, it's clear that the Ukrainian military at this point is employing reserve brigades in the fight and has forced the Russian military to deploy their reserves as well. So it's coming down much more to work side has engaged in better force management, which side has the reserves and the overall balance of attrition. Second, it's not clear where the others, where both sides stand in terms of their ammunition availability and changing weather could be a factor as we get later to into October, right? So the folks who say that this offensive can go on for many months, I'm sorry, that's not the case. At a certain point, remaining combat strength becomes a limiting factor, remaining ammunition becomes a limiting factor, and just the likely changing weather will make it difficult to prosecute operations. It affects both sides. So at a certain point, I think we'll be in a position to judge the course of this offensive, but we're not there yet, right? And so I'm wary of people prematurely declaring the offensive either over or having failed. 
Uh, I think where we are right now is in a fairly decisive period in terms of this offensive, and the next couple of weeks will be very telling. Mark, anything you want to add, feel free to jump in, but just kind of break down and explain, like, what is this disconnect between the gloomy um, kind of proclamations about the lack of success that Ukraine is having and what you think you're actually seeing on the battlefield? Kind of what has, why has the mood turned in the media's portrayal and the U.S. government, some of these quote unquote leaked kind of um, assessments of where the counteroffensive is and talk to us about how that stacks up to what you're seeing playing out on the battlefield. Yeah, Andrew, it's a great question. And there's a couple of factors that I'll throw in. First of all, I want to comment on, on Mike uh, Mike's and Rob Lee's article yesterday, because it was phenomenal in terms of its detail. And it, it really took, um, I think it took uh, a military eye to understand some of the nuances of the things that they had seen on the battlefield, which were fascinating. Um, but to get to your question, a couple of things. First of all, the American people uh, are very short-sighted. Uh, I think many people, when they saw the initial capability of the Ukrainian force to stop this major Russian invasion, they had a feeling where they shifted perspective from, hey, we once believed the Russians were 10 feet tall. Now we're realizing they're not so good. And there seemed to be an evolution toward, hey, the Ukrainians are now 10 feet tall and they can do anything we give them. And that's not quite true either. Uh, the, the second thing, I think there was an expectation uh, by many people to include Ukraine, that when they received Western style weapons, that there would suddenly be a desert storm-like offensive that would be over very quickly. Not understanding the capability of even a dysfunctional Russian force of establishing defensive positions over a long period of time. And it's much easier to, to fight a defense than it is an offense. The third thing is that, you know, th there, there is the feeling that, hey, we've given them all these new weapons from both the US and NATO, how come they're not using them the way we use them and rolling right over the Russians because we designed those weapons to kill uh, Russian forces and destroy their, their Russian capability? Uh, well, you know, truthfully, as, as I said early on, when you start delivering multiple new weapon systems to any army, to include our own, it takes a long time to incorporate them to understand their capabilities and to use them. Then the fourth thing, Andrea, and, and this is where I think uh, Mike, Mike and, and Rob Lee made such great points. Um, it, it's one thing to have courageous Ukrainian soldiers fighting for their own sovereignty and regaining their territory. It's quite another thing to have trained staffs and trained units uh, synchronizing their efforts in a in a, a very large offensive operation, uh, that that's extremely hard. We've just talked now. I'm, I'm going to say the fifth thing and the final thing. We've just talked primarily about the offensive, but when you look at some of the challenges that General Zaluzny is facing, it's not only controlling you know dozens of brigades on multiple fronts. It's also for the first time in his career pushing what is a building mature logistics line forward to follow uh, the offensive operations. 
It's coordinating with the territorial forces that are sometimes even behind enemy lines. It's dealing with humanitarian crises across the board. And it's also understanding that, that the political uh, aperture of President Zelensky, his boss, has to do both conduct an offensive, please the alliances, and at the same time, protect the civilian population that remains in many areas that are not part of the offensive. I got to tell you, when you start combining those various lines of efforts, that is one hell of a, of a challenge for any army in the world. And that's what I think the American and Western populations tend to forget. There's a whole lot more to this than gaining ground. Really a quick follow-up for both of you. And Mike, you talked about this in your War on the Rocks piece, which is the challenge that the Ukrainian military is having scaling their offensive operations. And you talk about how they're having kind of the challenges conducting combined arms operations at the battalion level and above. Can you just I, I, like in really like layman's terms for people who aren't military analysts, can you both explain that to listeners and what that means and why that's such a challenge? And this is the question I always ask to Mike. Can you please explain it to a 10 year old? <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so so maybe I'll go first and, and I'll just kind of make three points here. All right. The first one is that while the Ukrainian forces are organized as brigades, let's say unit that has four to five thousand men. Okay. In practice, that brigade, when it goes on the offensive, of that entire brigade staff, if you look at all the forces they have, they have a lot of equipment, they have a lot of people. But at most, they're going to attack with something like two reinforced company elements, right? Maybe a total of, let's say, 300 men. That's how much the brigade can coordinate, provide fire support to. And those are also the units of action, that is the troops that have been trained to conduct an assault in the brigade as well, that are, that are able to do it. Okay. This means that at any given time, the brigade can only employ a fairly small amount of its forces. And if those forces are lost in a decisive action, it takes a while for the brigade to recover as well. Yes, they still have thousands of men on paper. They still have a lot of Bradleys or a lot of striker vehicles. And people think that the next day they're going to be back at it. But the truth is that's a lot harder. The, the formation has to recover. And there's all sorts of issues that come you know, from this kind of action as well. These are people at the end of the day, the command staff has to rethink things. Morale will drop. If you've lost a battalion in action, the next day another battalion isn't going to go. Especially a lot of these people are mobilized from civilian life. They are not experienced soldiers. For many of them, this is their first combat action, right? And that's why I often say it's not like in wargaming, right? Where you have markers and, and, and things on the board and you can just attack the next day with a different battalion. In real life, it doesn't work out that way. The second part is coordination. So the Ukrainian military tends to sequence things. Let's say do an artillery barrage, then uh, uh, put units in into offensive action, rather than coordinate as well between infantry, armor, and artillery. And there are reasons for that. The Ukrainian military is a very good defensive military. It's good at positional defense. It's good at mobile defense. And it is also culturally a fires-driven military because it's a successor to the Soviet military. It has a lot of artillery. Part of the challenge we have in the United States is we haven't shown up to a country, let's say, like Afghanistan or Iraq or whatnot. We've shown up to a place that has an institutionalized military with its own way of doing business, its own force structure, its own tendencies or preferences towards force employment. And yeah, they're going to do things a certain way, and it's completely unrealistic that in three or four months, you're going to somehow train them to not only do things differently, but do things necessarily, let's say, the way that you tend to do them. 
realizing that it took us a long way to establish our militaries and establish the way we use forces, and lots goes into that, right? So combined arms is coordination of sort of infantry, armor, artillery together in a synchronized manner. One thing I want to deal with, and I've heard this before in the last month or two, is folks said, well, you know, Ukraine can't do this without air power. Having Western air power is very important, but two points. Having Western air power doesn't convey air superiority. And most importantly, look, coordinating uh, ground force elements is not directly related to having air power. That's like saying that you can't juggle three balls at the same time because you don't have five. It's actually a lot harder to coordinate air land battle, there's air power with land forces, then it is just to coordinate land forces, right? So the people who use the alibi saying, Ukraine can't do combat arms because it doesn't have air power, that's not the case. It's actually a lot easier to do combat arms if, you, if, you, if you're not even factoring in for, for the air power equation, which, which isn't to knock anything that Ukraine is doing, just to address that argument I've heard, which isn't logical and doesn't track with anything I at least know about, about force employment. Okay. So, so to close out uh, this part of the conversation, at least from my end, you know, the issues that you see is that Ukraine has a lot of forces, but it is limited, somewhat throttled, and how it can employ them on the offense, right? And a lot of that's also driven by the operational conditions, right? The reality that you have minefields, you have well-prepared defenses, and you have limited enabling capabilities, mind-breaching equipment or air defense that allows you to cover the force and, and enable it to advance. So there are folks out there who thought they were going to see hundreds of tanks and Bradleys and other things and kind of relive the Battle of Norfolk or something along those lines. But but the reality is that this war is very different and the conditions aren't there to enable using forces you know, on the scale or massing them at this level, both because of the limits on, on the Ukrainian side and also because of the actual operating environment. And it wouldn't be helpful, right? It would just lead to large-scale losses of tanks and infantry fighting vehicles rather than success. And that's something that Ukrainians have been trying to say in, in how they're answering uh, some, of these, some of these statements that have leaked into the press. Mark, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I do. One of the things that I, one of the many things I found fascinating in Mike and Rob's article, uh, and, and it takes a military nerd like me to point these out, but when you got into the details of what they were talking about in terms of the after actions of some of the units and some of the reports of what was happening. I, I gotta tell you, it, it, I mean, I had flashbacks to my time as the commander of the ops group at the NTC, because what Mike and Rob were talking about was what happens to every single American brigade that goes through our national training center. People miss the line of departure. They get lost in the dark. Their scouts don't get out. They have minefield uh, problems getting through a breach. They don't synchronize their artillery with their movements. I mean, it was Bob. It was it was an AAR at Fort Irwin, California, uh, and it was it, it was actually kind of funny because it was the same kind of problems from a force that had never practiced this kind of stuff before. And and Michael's point just now, and I'm sure we're going to talk more about this. There, there are no game changers on this battlefield. Air power, and, and, and boy, I'm going to, you know, if this thing goes out, I'm sure I'm going to get pilloried by a bunch of people saying, hey, you're not an F-16 driver. You don't know what you're talking about. I actually kind of do that when you're talking about incorporating air power, like Michael says, you know, you don't just throw the keys to an F-16 to a newly trained pilot and say, have at it. 
although there are some people on the on the internet who are going to say just give Ukraine everything they need because they've proven they can incorporate it. That's not quite true. They've had some real challenges with a lot of Western equipment that isn't in the press. I mean, even Javelin launchers proved to be a challenge to them early on because they were using up all their batteries before they could actually fire the missile uh, using it as a night vision device. So those are the kind of things you don't want to put on the internet because you'll have a bunch of NAFO people telling you how wrong you are. But the point of the matter is, air power takes literally years to incorporate into something called that we used to call airland battle. It was an entire doctrinal approach that took over 10 years to get into our system. Uh, you can't just incorporate F-16s and expect them to suddenly gain air superiority. And that's just one of the many issues uh, that I think we, we need to talk about. And we have to be more patient with the Ukrainian forces in what they're doing, because as I said before, the stuff they're doing is unbelievably hard. That's my final comment. Uh, well, thanks uh, so much for that, Mark and, and Mike. Uh, this has been, the past few minutes have been excellent. And I hope this this podcast is widely heard because I think there's a lot of people out there who, who this is all new to them and they need to hear this kind of, of uh, these words uh, to better understand the nuances of what they're reporting on and, or what they're seeing and what their expectations are. So thank you. Uh, Mike, good to see you. And Mark, especially good to see you. You and I go way back to a different day. And uh, and it's amazing to find ourselves sitting face to face once again on a video teleconference, having to deal with some some issues that we were afraid could happen and in fact have. But it's uh, but my question for you all is this, and it gets to what Mike was saying. And also, Mark, you were alluding to this too. And it's these leaks. Uh, Andrea mentioned these leaks as well. And one of them was uh, I think it was misunderstood, and I think we need to, to sort it out, as there was, it looked like the way it was reported that the uh, that Ukraine was unhappy with the training they were being given, uh, that we were training them for combat, that uh, not only is it not possible given the situation on the battleground, but, but quote, that's not, not the way we fight, unquote. And so there was a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, of uh, chatter on the, on, on, in various places about, uh, whether what our training, what we what we what were we really doing? Were we training them to use the equipment? Were we giving them basic training? Were we giving them airland battle training? I mean, and plus there were different nations that were doing training, and so there was a bit of a big mess out there, a big scrum of people trying to pass judgment on uh, on what the what we were doing in terms of training broadly, uh, and also deal with this idea that Ukraine wasn't happy with the way the West was giving them training. So could you sort this out for everyone and kind of set everybody straight about what the issues were? You've touched on it already. This is just an opportunity to kind of put it together and address that specific criticism that supposedly has been made against the West. Mike, can I go first on this one? And then you can kind of critique what I'm saying. Let me go back a little bit, Jim, because you know some of the things we were doing in Europe when I was there, when we opened up the Joint Multinational Training Group Ukraine in Lviv, or in Yavoriv, actually. Right. And it was built primarily to prepare Ukrainian forces and others for actions in Afghanistan as part of the ISAF force. Uh, now, what was fascinating about that was... We were able to conduct NCO training, small unit officer training at Grafenbeer, but we never got above, in terms of training, above the battalion level. Right. And that was pretty much ad hoc as well. 
Uh, that was done both at Grafenbeer in Germany and at Yavoriv in Ukraine. Uh, but I tell you, it was more geared toward battalion level operations, company level operations, squad level operations in Afghanistan in a counterinsurgency environment. That's what Ukraine had learned from a bunch of NATO instructors and California National Guardsmen. Okay, when you transition to the 2014 invasion, then there was, as Michael said, that defensive requirement in the Donbass. Now you're talking about conducting what is the equivalent of a World War II uh, uh, offensive operation on multiple fronts that require the kind of staff training at the, the colonel and the general officer level. And, and the interesting piece of this is when Ukraine started the war, they had the seeds of the cultural dynamics of Western military. But just like Russia has been somewhat dysfunctional and has lost a lot of their forces and replaced a lot of their generals and senior leaders, so has Ukraine. And because they haven't had some of the train the trainers in Ukraine, they haven't been able to process a new mobilized unit of senior leaders. And again, those senior leaders take decades to grow, not six months, not six weeks. Um, so they have reverted back, and I think Michael will comment on this, reverted back to the old Soviet model of using artillery and massing and small unit attacks and reconnaissance in force and those kind of things. That right. is not the Western way of war. Right. Uh, and everyone will say, hey, you know, we should be training. Your point is exactly right, that because there has been the mobilization of the population, the shoe salesmen, the, the restaurateurs, you need a combination of basic training, small unit level leadership training, platoon and company training, and brigade and battalion staff training. And that's not even touching the general officer corps. When you're talking about operational maneuver and sustainment, that takes some really smart generals. I never got that right as a general, okay? And I kept learning how to do it better. So you're talking about, again, guys that have never done it before. And that, that basically was one of the things that Minister of, of the Interior uh, Kaleba said, where he said, I wish everybody would shut up. We know what we're doing. My response to that is, yeah, maybe, but not really. Not completely. Yes, you've been in the war for 18 months, but anyone would tell you there's still a lot to learn. So, so those are the kind of things that are really hard to piece together when you're talking about an operation, which probably consists of, I would guess, although I'm not in General Zaluzny's talk, uh, his operation center, I would guess there's probably close to 250,000 Ukrainian soldiers in the field today. Yeah. Mike? Sure. So let me think where I can add to Mark's great comments. I think, you know, first regarding training, it's just the real challenge you see Ukrainians have is at when it comes to unit cohesion, because they had so little time to develop unit cohesion at platoon company battalion level. And one thing I've commented is that folks were overly optimistic looking at how fast Ukrainians could learn to operate Western equipment, equipment that they have had before in their force structure, artillery, armor, uh, IFEs, what have you. And then assume that you can dramatically shorten the time required to make to build a company or a battalion and make that work. And the answer is not really. It's actually very hard. And if you do, as Mark suggested, 
You can see a lot of the errors you will see folks in the United States make at about three, four months into their training, but you're going to see them in initial assault breaching operation, right? The second issue comes with brigade staff training as well. The brigade staff has to learn how to use different parts of the brigade, plan, coordinate action. And, and Ukrainian brigade staffs tend to be pretty small um, in terms of that as, as, a, as a part of, uh, of the overall staff in that unit. The next part goes into doctrine and culture, right? And, and so, you know, we know culture tends to be doctrine for breakfast. This is still a military that tends to use fires decisively and maneuvers to move up fires much more so than the way in the United States we might use fires to enable combined arms maneuver, right? And that's why I have so much fires in its force structure as well. And it's going to revert to relying on that whenever the conditions for maneuver, successful maneuver operations aren't there, right? If the breach doesn't go well, the Ukrainian military fell back on what their advantages were. Small unit tactics, which they're very good at, their force quality is better than the Russian force quality consistently. They're much better at infantry assault. And they're quite effective at uh, seizing the advantage in artillery fire and in counter-battery fire. And this is the first time in the war that we were able to provide them a relative advantage in two fires. Not the size of advantage, I would say, but it's a big deal to provide a relative advantage in fires over the Russian military, which is principally an artillery army, right? It's not easy. Um, and, the, and, they've, and they've used that effectively. So, so, so this is an important point is that when it comes to tactics, I think Ukrainian forces fairly correctly reverted to what they know works for them, what they can make work. And they were pretty successful doing that while trying to minimize their casualties over the last three months. Now, is that enough to achieve a breakthrough or get to their objectives? I don't know, but that's an important point. Um, the last part I would add, Jim, to, to what you were saying is that, you know, when it comes to employing forces scale, I'm very happy that Mark made this point online fairly recently. Ukrainian military has a lot of experience, has a lot of experience in this war, and has tremendous tactical experience, right? But employing forces scale is a work in progress for them, and this is something the United States knows how to do, and it knows how to fight as brigade combat teams. The Ukrainian military did not have a divisional or a corps force structure. It has corps that is using, in this offensive for the first time, a core level structure above the brigade, but just for organizational logistics, not as a decision-making command, right? Above that, so it's an operational command that Tarnovsky's in charge of, Group Tavria. Point being is that there's plenty of things the United States can learn from Ukrainian force and from their experience, but there's still a number of things that they that they yes. can learn from us and from Western countries. And I don't like the one-sided conversation of, oh, we have nothing left to, uh, to teach the Ukrainian military. No, there's quite a bit we can teach about organization of logistics, about employing force at scale, about employing higher sort of uh, units of action beyond the platoon and the company, how you coordinate all this, how you do planning and what have you, particularly on the offense, right? And so I think it's fair to, to say both of those things are true. And, and here's the reality. If you look at Ukrainian military requests, it is for more training, battalion, brigade staff, for a lot of this, they want it. We're, if anything, late to need. So it's not like the demand signal for them is, is for somehow for less training or, or to not gain or benefit from our experience. Yeah. Well, well, let me, let can I add I, one, oh. Jim, can I add one thing to that, yeah. though, too? And, and it's a, a minor piece. But what we're talking about when when we're seeing the Ukrainian forces in the offense versus the Russians in the defense, you know, there's a lot of amateurs who are who are talking about, oh, you know, Napoleon said it takes three to one for the defense for the offense to overcome the defense. That ain't true in this case. You know, when you, when you <laughs> yeah. put Russians in the field for nine months, 
uh, improving their defensive positions. Uh, and as Michael pointed out in his article, using mines at a much greater rate, you know, I would suggest that those, those percentages or those ratios go up to 10 or 11 or 12 to one in terms of an offender overtaking the kind of defensive lines that are in place right now. And, and that's what I think many people don't understand how difficult, you know, if you know the enemy, you know yourself and you know the terrain, in a thousand battles, you will never be defeated or words to that effect that, that Sun Tzu said. The terrain is really, you know, gonna be, it's tough now and it's gonna be tougher when the winter comes, as Michael said. So is yeah. that why it's such a problem that they can't scale up operations? I mean, as Mike, you pointed out, they're fighting in smaller units. And so is, is that, would you say that's one of the key shortcomings up when going up against such a well-entrenched defensive line? That if you're fighting in a smaller, in these fallers, in these smaller units, and you're not able to scale up operations, that it's just going to be that much harder to break through a defensive position. Is there any benefit in fighting in smaller units, or they're just reverting to that because it's as what as you said, that's what they know. The benefit is that it reduces casualties. It allows them to make progress at a slower pace, but it allows them to degrade Russian forces. The downside is that you can't generate momentum that way, and it's hard to impose dilemmas on your opponent because you're just pressing them back, and you're pressing them back into more and more prepared defensive lines they have. It's very difficult to then outflank them to create real challenges for them in terms of rotation or deployment of reserves. You see Ukrainians being able to do some of that, but that's the downside. And everything's a trade-off. I often try to explain to folks that there isn't like a risk-free or cost-free option that you can just have in war, but there's no trade-off to anything. There are often trade-offs. And uh, Ukrainian military, I think, is playing to its strengths and may not be what the Western countries uh, had thought they were going to see or wish to see. But nonetheless, it is proving to be effective. I just don't know if this is going to enable them to get there. And, and you know, the basically... Uh, I reserve judgment because I actually think we're kind of in a decisive period in this offensive. And I, and I get frustrated when people want to call it too early. You know, my my view consistently has been give it a chance, like let it play itself out, give it a chance. And, and then we can have the we can have the discussion afterwards rather than trying to call this one way or another. But speaking of dilemmas, though, I mean, can you talk a little bit? We haven't talked about the fact that the the, the Russians are conducting offensive operations further north. And so is there a dilemma for both sides in terms of the Russians? If Are they wanting to dedicate more forces to the offensive operations, but finding that they have to be careful about not leaving themselves vulnerable in the South and then vice versa for the Ukrainians wanting to mass more force in the South? Does that leave them more in a more difficult um, position for defending against the North? I mean, so let's broaden it up a little bit and talk about what's happening in the North and whether or not there truly is a dilemma for both sides. So I think the Russian military has been trying to pressure Ukraine along uh, the Kharkiv front and along the swath of the Crimea line. It created a bit of a problem, but Ukrainian military was able to stabilize that situation, I think, pretty well. In general, though, both sides face force management issues, right? So Ukraine has forces deployed in a supporting offensive around Bakhmut. Some of its better and most experienced units are fighting there. Uh, it has another uh, supporting axis of advance down south from the Yukonovasilka. It has to defend against Russian attempts to advance near Kupiansk. 
and the Russian military is creating that pressure to try to draw Ukrainian forces from Bakhmut, right? So it's it's a it's a fairly dynamic battlefield in that sense, and the Ukrainian military is also applying pressure in order to stretch the uh, the Russian reserves available, right? And that's why I said that part of this really comes down to who better manages their reserves and their forces uh, and and their posture looking over the next two months, right? Do I think that the Russian military is anywhere near breaking through up north? I don't. I, I'm actually very skeptical of Russian offensive potential, but it creates pressure on Ukrainian units there. Right? And, and some of the critique that's been going around, you know, those people refer to as a sort of armchair generalship, has been more uh, on a higher level of military strategy of, of how Ukraine has chose to uh, spread its forces between the different axes of advance, the supporting offensives. And, you know, for mine, and to be frank, Rob's end, the criticism wasn't that. Just our own, if if there was a view, and it's not a critical view, it's just an observation that Ukraine's better and most experienced units happen to be fighting around Bakhmut. And a lot of the newer units were given the task of breaching in the main effort down south. And just as an analyst, you know, that raises natural questions. I don't know if Mark had the same questions looking at that, but it just makes you wonder about that choice. You know, other than that, I don't have anything to add to it. <laughs> Yeah, Mike's exactly right. The choice, I think, was good. It was, again, when, you, when you're when you a commander and you look at your forces, you can say, that unit's better than that unit, so I'm going to put them in my main assault. Uh, and you put maybe the, the, the weaker ones holding the, the supporting positions. But the other thing I'd, I'd add to what Michael said, it's been fascinating to me, again, going back to, to logistics determines the art of the possible. Uh, you're talking about a four to 600 kilometer front. And I don't know, you know, exactly what the exact places are and, and how much fighting is going on along that entire frontage. If that, if I'm wrong in that, Michael, let me know. But the, the point is that I learned something as a sophomore at West Point about interior and exterior lines. And we don't talk about that much. And I think Ukraine has really put Russia in the horns of a dilemma that they may want to move some of their reserves, but the advantages that they've received from HIMARS and other precision weapons and the strikes that they've conducted in their shaping operations has prevented Russia from moving the reserves as freely as they once did. And even when they were free to move them at the early phases of the war, they couldn't because it's such a long distance. And uh, Ukraine is, a, is, is in interior lines, they can reinforce different positions better than the Russians can. And I think that's instrumental in terms of what will happen. But I'll say one last point. I agree completely with Michael that we got to give this a chance. I mean, anybody that's making predictions right now are going to be way off in whatever happened. The only person that really knows what's going on, uh, notwithstanding Rob and Mike's article, is Zaluzny and his subordinate commanders because they're inside the talks. They know where the weak points are, they know where. They want to go next. And uh, again, I agree with Mike that, that we've got to potentially train them better at the higher level staffs. Um, and that, even that's going to be very difficult to do unless we start putting forces in the, you know, trainers, retired guys. And I'll volunteer, by the way, to go into Ukraine and, and help their units out. You know, in fact, I think uh, Jack Watling and the guys at Rusi put out something, I think this morning, uh, that was talking about the train the trainer kind of thing, retired uh, 
Western military uh, folks getting going to Ukraine, being hired on by uh, the Ukrainians to do some training and uh, that type of thing. So that might uh, that reminded me of the 1990s when we did that. If you remember when the uh, we had a lot of retired U.S. officers going into Central Europe and doing training in those days. But let me go back to something that you said, Mark, uh, and also Mike. You you alluded to this too, and. And again, it's uh, these leaks, uh, you know, Andrea talked about that. And these came out of the New York Times, uh, these leaks that we just talked about in terms of training. But there was this thing that that was uh, Millie was fingered as, as being a source and other people saying uh, that uh, they have that, that Ukraine has just put their troops in the wrong areas. Uh, they've got a mass in one area. They're spreading them out. You've touched on that just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, but I, I just don't understand uh, these things kind of all of a sudden you wake up in the morning and like mushrooms after a rainstorm, they just sprouted up these these, you know, these uh, these rumors coming out of uh, Intel sources or the Pentagon, the joint. It's just crazy. So if you could, I, I thought that the, this I this criticism, this idea that they had they, that Ukraine had totally screwed it up. They put their forces in the wrong areas. Uh, um, you've you've alluded to that, but I think this is an opportunity for us to put a spike through it. What did you think of those of that criticism coming out of Washington somewhere? Uh, what did you what did you think about that criticism, and uh, why do you think it was coming out? Who was, you know, what's the thought behind saying that kind of thing? So, Mark, I'm going to I'm going to start on this one, Mike, because I've got some real scar tissue on these. Uh, you know, as as a commander in the field in combat. Uh, there is all there are always people taking pot shots at you, and you know if you take the time to try and explain things in a in a relatively calm manner, uh, you know it's it's there's a reason I've got a couple of baseball bats and baseballs behind me is because combat is a lot like baseball. If you're hitting 300, you're going to be in the World Series, uh, or you're going to be in the Hall of Fame rather. Uh, you know these are comments probably made by people who are not trying to degrade Ukraine, and this is my perception anyway, who are not trying to degrade per, uh, Ukraine, but they're just saying, here's what we're seeing. Well, you know, in, in leadership, you know that communications is 20% of what you say and 60% of what other people hear, and then body language, facial expression, and tone of voice is the final percentage. So you may be saying something, uh, to an audience that doesn't have the capability to analyze or interpret because they don't have the combat experience. And that's that's not, you know, I'm not being pejorative. I'm just saying they don't have it, where it's it, it's suddenly taken a life of its own in the newspaper. And then the newspaper, like the Times or the Washington Post, are thrown into the cable network channels and people start focusing on that. The, the point is, none of it's helpful. And people that are saying these kind of things may be just leaking information, or they may just be talking about what they're seeing, and it's it's spun a different way. I don't know, but it's better if you're working in that five-sided building to just, you know, kind of keep classified information classified. That's why we have things like the Chatham House rules. Yeah. You can weigh in too, but I'm going to just throw other questions into the mix. Um, I was also surprised to see um, the announcement on Sunday that Zelensky is replacing the Minister of Defense Reznikov um, with um, 
Rustam Umarov, who's also, a, I thought, interestingly, a Crimean Tatar. Um, what did you make of that announcement? And does it say anything about Ukraine's objectives in this war, meaning with Crimea? Obviously, Crimea is part of Ukraine, but does the replacement of the Minister of Defense of someone who comes from Crimea signify anything to you about war aims at all? No, I, I, I'll make a comment on it. I, I don't know if I'm right or not, but I think a couple of things. Uh, Reznikov uh, it has been a very good defense minister. But like a lot of institutions inside of Ukraine, and both of you know this, both you and Jim know this, there, there is still some corruption in the country. Uh, and he was unfortunately dealing with some of it in the Ministry of Defense. So a combination of making a point uh, by President Zelensky that I'm going to continue to fight corruption, even though there's a war go going on, is an important one. I think Truthfully, I think Reznikov is probably pretty tired. He's had a tough 18 months. Uh, and thirdly, there is a signal uh, with Yumarev going in as the Minister of Defense. He's not only a Crimean Tartar, he's also a Muslim. And he's also kind of worked some of the deals with Saudi Arabia that was the lead in to the peace process. So it's a combination of that individual having a better feel for the people of Crimea and as well as his family being uh, placed in, in Uzbekistan where he was born because of Stalin. I mean, he was originally a Crimean. Uh, so all of those things play a, a role, I think, in pub public policy as well as defense policy. But I'd also say he's gonna have a pretty steep learning curve to get on board with the NATO ministers as well as Secretary Austin because the in my view, the Ramstein conferences have been a, a stroke of brilliance in terms of getting Ukraine supplied with Western uh, weapons. Mike, you can comment too, but Mark, really quickly, is that is it how um, common is it to replace a minister of defense in the middle of a major war? Well, we might want to ask Secretary Wolfowitz. I'm sorry, Secretary Rumsfeld. Yeah. Because um, he was. Yeah. And should have been probably earlier. Yeah. Uh, but that's a whole nother story. I won't go okay. there. <laughs> yeah, I think, Andrea, the, the short answer is depends on the sector of defense. And um, I won't add much more to what Mark said about Reznikov's replacement, except that he nearly got replaced in the winter in January. And for, for a bit there, he appeared to be a dead man walking. It was quite close. And... I think part of the issue definitely has been that, yes, Ukraine is still dealing with corruption and there are a host of corruption issues that cropped up in the procurement and other aspects of, of sort of the MOD's work. And that's not a, you know, that's not a knock on Reznikov. It's, he took over a ministry. He had to work through the toughest period in Ukraine's history for over 500 days as a, as a, as a minister of defense, right? And he was not also able to fix all the corruption issues in Ukraine and Ukraine's defense sector at the same time. Right. So I think that's that's a fair that's a fair counter to the reality. But I think the president also had to look at, at the net situation. And part of the story was Reznikov himself supposedly was looking to step down. I mean, these people have been working uh, under immense intensity and exhaustion for such a long time, you know. Obviously, the president can't step down. The heads of other people can't step down. But the minister of defense can has the option of stepping down and, and turning it over to somebody who 
uh, who has more energy. They're not they're not the commander in chief. I mean, President Kemp's background is as a lawyer. It's not as a defense specialist, just to be clear, too. That's helpful. Um, uh, I know we're I, I don't know if you want to wait. Yeah, go ahead. If you wanted to weigh in on something previous. The only thing I would say about the leaks, and I don't know much about it, but I will say that I think the press sometimes garbles the criticism and what is right. being said, and it's a right. broken telephone. And I will add, and this is just to be clear, not at all a knock uh, to Mark, but retired generals trying to answer active generals or whoever it is working anonymously behind these leaks is also not helpful. Because what I'm really reading and have been for the last month and a half is a lot of people talking past each other in terms of their points. And the press garbling a lot of what's being said and why it's being said. And so much of the conversation has taken place in a low information environment. And it hasn't been super helpful either to us or to the Ukrainians. Okay, that's just my own view, right? And I, I agree. And I'm really glad you put it that way. That's exactly what I've been seeing as well. And this just gives us an opportunity to get that notice out there to people is they've got to listen critically and not just take for granted what might be reported in the New York Times as, as being... Uh, what the view is in the Pentagon. It's just, that's right. not necessarily so, so. Sure, and and to be frank, and some of our retired generals need to learn to hold fire. Not, not everything's a call for their commentary. If they don't know why that's criticism's happening or what's going on too. And uh, and I see a lot of that back and forth. And you notice a lot of, like as an analyst, a lot of us just sort of step back, stand back and try not to comment as much on it. Um, like I said, Mark, that's not that's not a comment to you, but it's a comment to some of the other, like Jackie, others. Had chosen to write these entire treatises, and, and why? I don't understand. Yeah. I don't understand what what they're really trying to accomplish. Um, yeah, the, the attempt. I hope I've been halfway successful as trying to explain what is happening, and maybe make some predictions versus telling the government what to do next. Because you know that's just ridiculous. There are so many things that play on the plate of the decision makers that you can't do those kind of things. There was a piece, you know, I, I probably shouldn't say the newspaper, but it was uh, yesterday where there was a, a, a op-ed written by a guy who was quoting uh, a one-star special operations, uh, special forces guy who I'd never heard of. And, you know, and, and it was like, Biden's all screwed up. The administration's slow to, you know, and it, it's like, okay, let's continue to bash. But in my view, it's been a tough row uh, the, the last couple of months. Uh, and for the most part, with some exceptions, I think that the combined ministries of NATO to include the United States have really worked some miracles given that, you know, we don't have a Kmart full of used uh, military vehicles to give away or ammunition. And we're learning the big, the big strategic lessons from that too, in terms of our industrial base which was over the last 10 years, the reason why Secretary Gates told NATO to start paying more for their equipment and for their arms. So, I mean, we're seeing some things come to roost here. Yeah. So maybe as a final question, I mean, it's a little bit hard because it, it, it's a big, two big questions. When you both look at the battlefield, in, what is it that Ukraine needs most? And there is a lot of emphasis in the public discourse. Well, if we just send the attackums or if we just get the the fighter planes in there, then that's going to be the game changer. So as you look at the battlefield, what is your best sense of what Ukraine needs? And if there is a way, like as part of your concluding thoughts, to, to set reasonable expectations for the next couple of months, what, what would those be? Okay. Uh, 
by the way, including what kind of training needs to be uh, reshaped for what we've learned uh, since we started. Well, I'll, I'll paint a general picture. So it's all the core things, and it's actually a lot of the uh, a lot of the the boring stuff. First and foremost, uh, artillery ammunition. Okay, this is a fires-driven war, and artillery ammunition is essential. Uh, we had to change policy on DPIGM cluster munitions because it it was it was necessary to extend the timeline for this offensive. Right, it, artillery ammunition is significant. Second, air defense ammunitions for air defenses is going to become a bigger factor as we enter the winter. And we could anticipate another Russian strategic strike campaign targeting Ukrainian critical infrastructure. Third, maintaining the force quality. As Mark said, we have two issues. We have a force that's witnessing a lot of attrition. We have to find ways to, to train people, train mobilized people, and try to maintain the force quality. Or its offensive potential will deteriorate. That's the problem. No matter how many Bradleys or tanks we give, the offensive potential of the force will deteriorate if we don't focus on that training part, if we don't scale it up. Right? Um, these three things to me are, are the top three priorities. They have been throughout the war and they remain so, right? But Mike, what about the attackums? Like, is there, like, how do you view that at, like within this overall mix? I'm just hitting it Hello. directly because in every conversation that we sit in, that's what comes up. So let's just hit it directly. All right, let me, let me get to it. So one last point. Most things that soldiers want, right, are uh, light mobility, night vision, mine clearing capabilities, enablers and one of the best ways to find out what the force needs you ask soldiers will they spend their own money to buy what do they spend their own money to buy and what do they get from volunteers that they're not getting through the standard military logistics systems right and it's typically drones night vision toyota you know toyota hilux any light mobility at all they need a lot of that right so these are important things to focus on and the reason i say that because there's plenty of countries uh, who who uh, want to support Ukraine? They say I don't have any uh, leopards and I don't have any Abrams. So what can I do? And it's like, well, you could buy a lot of Toyotas and make a difference. Actually, all right, put that aside. Let's talk about ATACMs and the Wunderwaffen discussions, uh, where where we have each uh, couple of months of conversation on how a missile is going to change something. And here's the way I view it. First, let's talk about the reality. Ukraine had been provided a reasonable supply of Storm Shadow air-launched cruise missiles with a long range and a warhead payload similar to that of ATAC. It's not the same capability, but it's fairly similar in, in, in a number of respects. They've been employed for four months, okay? They probably employed as many uh, Storm Shadows as I think we might have been likely to give ATAC, to be perfectly honest, right? Have these contributed to Ukraine's war effort? Absolutely. Have they enabled Ukraine to strike some Russian logistics nodes some bridges and and some command and control. Yes, have they been a game changer? Have they led to decisive breakthrough in this offensive? I let anybody listening be the judge of that, but the answer clearly is no. Okay. Next, there's this theory that if you just had missiles with range, or if you just got within range of the road that runs along the coast, you basically win the whole offensive. I'm sorry, that's profoundly untrue. If that was the case, you wouldn't need the offensive in the first place. Ukraine could just sit back, use storm shadows, wait till they get GLSDB. And, and what have you. They're just not how things work. Even actually when you're within what looks like fire control of tube artillery and you're just 20 kilometers or so from uh, from behind the line, it doesn't establish nearly as much as you think it does. And I'm speaking from personal experience as somebody who's been to Bakhmut, which was under Russian fire control, the main supplier, it's the entire time of that battle. And someone's been down south on the rehib and the rehib and Robotina, which were held by Russian forces, were only apart by about six miles. Okay, just to be clear, in fact, much of the front line has only been apart by a couple of kilometers as this offensive has played out. 
and well within tube artillery range of both sides. So if you think that fire control just eliminates the other side's ability to resist, even with artillery alone, it doesn't. And you need to be clear-eyed and open about it that uh, defensive uh, is not, how do I put it, you can't just move forward by another 5, 10 kilometers and say, okay, now the Russian coast is within range of HIMARS, so, so this we can call us a victory. Okay, ATACMS. I think ATACMS is an important conversation, right? And it's worth asking why the United States won't give ATACMS to Ukraine. But the way I view ATACMS is as another capability that could be added to the quiver or expand the magazine bank that Ukraine has of long-range precision-guided weapons, right? Do I think that... Uh, that ATACMS by itself would be a game changer based on the performance and the efficacy of how other long-range precision guide weapons have been used? No, I don't think it'll be a game changer because we just had a four-month experience of this, right? Do I think that Ukraine is right to ask for ATACMS and basically ask why not and why have we not gotten at this point? Absolutely, absolutely. I think they're right to ask for it and for Taurus missiles. The last point I will make is that one of the biggest challenges is not the weapon itself, but restrictions on employment, right? Can it be used to strike in Russia? Can it be used to strike civilian critical infrastructure like key bridges, like let's say the Kirk Strait Bridge? And, and that's, the, that's the real problem to interrogate, right? Because if the weapon is provided, but it's provided with these restrictions, they will not be able to achieve what people think it will achieve. And that's the policy question. That is not a technical limitation on the weapon, right? right. So you, can get, you, you can get a Taurus missile from Germany with a longer range, but if the Germans say you can't use it to hit the Kirk Strait Bridge, that is that. That's just the point I want to make. That's a real policy debate rather than a missile debate. Mark, yeah. anything on the what does Ukraine need and what yeah. are reasonable expectations over the next couple months? I'll talk attackums and and a little bit of F-16 because those are the two things that keep coming up. You know, uh, the attackums, there are multiple reasons. Michael uh, mentioned some of them. Uh, but long before I was commander of U.S. Army Europe, I was the J-7 on the Joint Staff when they used to have responsibility for war plans. What is being provided to Ukraine are things that are not allocated already in for other contingency operations. Attackums are called a low-density, high-demand piece of equipment in many theaters of operation. So you, you may say we're risk-averse for not giving them, but number one, they're allocated in a very small number to other theaters. Number two, in my view, they don't have the capability, even though they've, they've become the mantra of everyone, they don't have the capability that Ukraine needs because they are a higher yield, longer range weapon system, but they're also subject to air defense and electronic warfare. So when you see the morning reports every day of Ukraine knocking down all sorts of ballistic missiles, you, uh, Russia has more air defense than Ukraine does. The same thing may happen to the ATACMs if they're sent uh, to key targets. Secondly, they have a, a, a huge penetration capability. And I can't think of any target right now that Ukraine would want to fire on other than having something explode that requires the penetration capability of the ATACM. Fourth, and I'll, you know, in, in, in terms of several of the storm shadow strikes inside of Russia and several of the, the drone strikes inside of Russia, I would ask, and this gets to the policy question that Mike talked about a minute ago, is what would have happened if instead of some of those Ukrainian-made drones striking inside of Russia, it had been an attack on missile? What would the reaction have been 
to the Russian society by Mr. Putin and what we've done. Some people will say, we don't care. So what? You know, we're, we're, they're at war. We need to give them everything they want. But I think, again, I'm not backing the current administration, but I do think the current administration has walked a tightrope in terms of ensuring that this war doesn't go beyond the territory of Ukraine into other NATO countries, because then it's going to be a Sarajevo type of type event. When you're talking, and we already kind of mentioned F-16s before, I'm all for providing uh, Ukraine with F-16s. It's going to take months, if not years, for them to make a difference. So if you want to make a statement of, hey, we're giving F-16s to Ukraine, it, it, you know, okay, that's great. They asked originally for 200 of them. That's close to 16 F-16 squadrons. Now they're asking for 120 of them. That's 10 squadrons. That, that's the equivalent of about $40 billion worth of equipment when you start adding on the missiles that they're fired, the maintenance capability, the parts and all that. We have given $40 billion worth of stuff off the shelf. And I'm just not sure if we're going to provide a weapon systems like the F-16 for today, that first of all, it's going to have an effect today. And secondly, if it won't drown out some of the politics involved in other decision makings of getting the weapon systems and primarily the ammo that Ukraine needs for the fight. And, and going back to your original question, Andrea, what I'd say is, what do we need to provide Ukraine? Support. We don't give them everything they ask for because some of it's not smart, but we continue to give them support. And that's going to be the political issue over the next six to nine to 12 months. All right. Final in 30 seconds from both of you, set some realistic expectations for the next couple of weeks, months, not asking Mike for predictions, just shape our expectations reasonably. Okay. I mean, I guess I'll go first. So I think that this offensive will probably un continue to unfold and progress uh, through October. After that, uh, I think there'll be an assessment period of where things are. It's likely that, that the intensity of fighting on the battlefield may begin to slow down at that point, depending on uh, what's actually happening with the combat strength of forces available. And as uh, the weather becomes much more unseasonable, Okay, I think that unfortunately, uh, depending on how the offensive closes out, we're going to see a period of prolonged attritional fighting heading into the winter like we did last year. Part of the reason for that is as I wrote uh, with Rob back in May in the Foreign Affairs piece is the wait and see approach regarding the offensive and the issue of decision points and the lead times for certain decisions to have effects. So if we've not made significant commitments in terms of equipment or training for Ukrainian forces before the offensive, right, back in May, then just judging by how uh, this offensive was prepared for, you can assume they'll take quite a few months to put another package together, right? So in, in, in a sense, the choices that have been made or not made over the course of the summer have already sort of established a, a path, dependent, uh, path dependency in the course of this conflict. I don't know what the Russian leadership or military will choose to do. For example, I don't think that the Russian military is much in the way of offensive potential, but they have a big choice to make on a second wave of mobilization, right? If they choose to conduct another wave of mobilization, which clearly they don't want to, then they might begin generating it again 
uh, not anytime soon, but perhaps over the course of the winter, right? It depends on whether or not they wish to do another winter offensive, and I can't quite predict that. And as for the rest of it, much will depend on what Western countries choose to do right now. Unfortunately, I hate to say it, but um, we're we're about to find out who is who, right? Because some countries backed Ukraine believing in military victory. Other countries were backing this offensive operation, hoping to put Ukraine in a better negotiating position, right? And they were kind of going to really invest in this one main effort. And now when they're put to it, that the war is going to go on, it's going to be a long war, right? There are no, the, it wasn't going to be resolved by this offensive anyway. I'd written long before. This offensive by itself was not going to end the war, even if it was as successful or or even if it reached all of its maximalist aims. That's just the reality, right? So they will now be really put to the test as to what it is they're willing to invest and whether or not they have the political will to continue supporting Ukraine in a meaningful way. And of course, I don't have the answer to that. In fact, if anybody, you and Jim might have better answers than that. You focus on the transatlantic community and you spend a lot more time there. I'm I'm more of a knuckle-dragging military analyst. <laughs> Mark, what do you want to add? I will add what I believe is going to happen is uh, over the next several weeks and months, Ukraine will Ukraine's forces will continue to regain territory. I don't know if it's going to be in large swaths swaths or small swaths. But the fact is, I believe they have generated and are continuing to generate a momentum. Now, this is just a gut feel on my part, reading the tea leaves. Um, Russia for, Russian forces will continue to be strained. Uh, they will have continued dysfunction in some areas, but they have become a learning organization and, and they are doing better than they have been before. So, you know, I don't know, by, by the start of the winter, uh, the only wild card in there is if that Ukrainian force generation suddenly has an inflection point where they break through somewhere, that could be a game changer. I hope that is what's going to happen, but hope isn't a method. I believe that is what's going to happen, and I don't know why I believe that. But I think probably, and I'm going to go really out on a limb on this one, I think before the end of October, we will see... Um, the potential for the generation of a momentum by the Ukrainian forces where they're regaining territory. But I will add to what you just said, uh, Michael, and that is even if Ukraine is wildly successful and regains all of their territory to include Crimea and the 10 points of Zelensky's peace plan are met, you are still going to have a belligerent Russia on their border. And it's going to be a lot like Israel to a degree, uh, where even if the war ends, the war is not going to end because that's how Russia sees the world. And Michael can talk more about that. But that's what I'm very much concerned about uh, is what happens if Ukraine is wildly successful? What hap What do we do next other than admitting them to NATO very quickly, which has some some issues all in to itself? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, you almost ended on the optimistic note that I like to end on, but it was close enough. But you did. I mean, you kind of set up where I think a lot of the conversation in Washington is right now about what happens at the historic Washington summit next year um, and what will be on offer for Ukraine. Will it be more than we saw in Vilnius or not? And I think a lot of people are really preoccupied. And I think this podcast then has provided a really helpful backdrop for setting expectations of where things 
plausibly could be when the the next summit rolls around and 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 how we need to be thinking about moving forward on that policy piece of it. So I yep. really we yeah we we blew way over our time, but I think this was really just an excellent discussion. No, I I appreciate that too, and I think this podcast is also given some tools for people uh, for, that they can use when they read stuff in the newspaper or hear things being predicted. I think you all really provided the uh, the understanding that there is a lot of nuance here and that, and that you have to be careful uh, in what you read to understand what is being meant or not meant. So thank you very much for all for that. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.